Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 237 Seasons of Practice. We're joined again by spiritual teacher and author Terry Patton to discuss the multi dimensional nature of practice. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. One of the things we're dealing with here on Buddhist Geeks is the coming together of this ancient wisdom tradition with global culture, like increasingly globalized culture, and in particular technology that's evolving really rapidly. And one of the things that you're teaching right now is what you're calling and what has been called integral spiritual practice or integral life practice. And what I love about the idea behind that, just the title in itself, is that somehow we could look at our practice as being integrated and, you know, normally for most people I've noticed as I've taught meditation, just as I've met people, there's a feeling oftentimes that our life is very fragmented, that we have our work over here, we have our family life, we have our spiritual thing, and they kind of all exist, not in completely isolated areas, but they often do feel a little siloed. One of the things about integral life practice is that it's intentionally trying to, in some ways, break down those silos and even the word life in there, it's not just spiritual, it's life practice, even though that includes spirituality. So I wanted to talk a little bit about practice and about integral life practice as a particular approach to practice. What does it mean to practice in a way where these different areas of life begin to break down and the separations or the seeming separations between them start to go? Well, yes, there's a lot to say on that subject. My, my best way of talking about this is a course that you know has eight long sessions and weeks of supplementary materials. It's right. Quite a... So you can condense that into like five minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think the core of it is, well, using Buddhist language, it's a recognition that we need both the sudden school and gradual school approaches. That is, all of life is suchness. All of life is the mystery of existence. That is the very nature of every arising moment. This moment, known and felt and experienced fully, is the secret teaching, the fruit of practice right here, the open secret of joy and freedom, love, everything we might want to be steeped in a, a teaching that allows us to have the benefit of, of what you find in Dzogchen practice, of simple recognition of the nature of each arising moment, but then to have forms in which you practice every morning, that you sit in meditation, that you move your body, that you recognize the way you relate to food and your diet is an important part of your life and practice. Recognize that the way you relate to 
the people in your life who are close to you, to your intimates, to your friends, to your children, to your parents, that this is a field of practice. You recognize that all the communities you're a part of, your local community, your nation, you know, your civic responsibilities as a voter, as a perhaps as an activist, this is an expression of practice, that your consciousness moment to moment, your shadow, your psychological stuff, that which you are committed to not seeing, and your curiosity and openness to awakening beyond the pattern of holding that you tend to be, that all of this is a singleness, and that living a life that is both an inquiry, both a a relaxed and open and curious participation in the unfolding mystery, and that applies itself to particular forms, you know, that this is what it's all about. This is the path. And I think every serious practitioner recognizes this at a certain point, that even though at a certain time in the day I do a practice, I do my sitting practice, I do my my qigong or my yoga or my or I have my therapy session, or I go for a run, or I spend time cleaning my house, or I volunteer for a political or a social cause, or do charity work, whatever those time-delimited practices might be, knowing that my very way of seeing and being in the world is itself a pattern that can evolve if I live each moment of my life as a, as a process of inquiry in which I kind of try out my way of being and the world gives me feedback <laughs> and, uh, and I notice that that whole way of being can evolve and that my way of relating to it is not just an intellectual noticing and responding from the mind. It's a feeling matter and it has to do with opening and appreciating and caring and more generously participating in each moment of life, that the motive that allows me to grow into a new way of seeing and a new way of being is not only an in, one of intelligence, it's one of love. And also of, of a kind of commitment to, to life, to making a difference, to action. You know, in a sense, if we mention intelligence and care, the head and the heart, we have to mention the hara as well, that it's also about, about choice and action and embodying it. All of that together is an integral life practice. And usually I tell people, you know, if you've attended the school of life long enough to know that it's a school and that you care to attend it better, and if you realize that it's, it's really something that involves all of you, that it's your heart, your head, your, your body, that's your behavior, that it really doesn't exclude anything. You're already doing an integral life practice or an integral spiritual practice. And these practices and distinctions that I teach are really just guidance, upaya, that enable you to do what you're already interested in doing more efficiently. So we notice the way that breaking up stuckness is in one area of life tends to open us up to growing in other areas. We tend to break out of our identity as a particular kind of practitioner and recognize ourselves as a kind of omnidirectional, multidimensional, embodied, conscious being who is 
who's growing in every vector, that there are many, many different kinds of growth and privileging only a few of them and narrowing ourselves into the identities associated with certain levels of growth in those particular foci turns us into something less than what we really are. And so the approach to practice that I recommend is one that intends to liberate people from even their identities as a practitioner. Because, you know, usually people have periods of time in which they very, very intensely embrace a particular practice and then they discover they've left out some area of life and they have a big recognition. They might find a new teacher or a new practice and then their focus shifts and then that becomes the focus for a while and then something else. And after a few decades, there's been, you know, there've been some through lines, hopefully sitting practice, but in other ways, their life has gone through phases and there's been something of a patchwork. And I really attempt to give people a more comprehensive framework in which there can be seasons of special focus in, in life, but that they're all accounted for from the beginning so that there truly is an integral practice that holds the whole trajectory of a lifetime. And that's what I think I've been able to do with this latest iteration of my course. And I'm I'm excited about that because I, I do feel that Dharma is needing to evolve. Referring to what I what you asked about at the beginning with my Beyond Awakening series and my activist orientation, you know, I think we need we need a different kind of activist who is a practitioner. That people who are not practitioners are not trustable enough to maturely attempt to make a bigger impact on the world. And so a subculture of trustable practitioners who can who give their, their lives over to what it is to be true and authentic is kind of what the world's asking of us. And, and I don't see an approach that allows us to fulfill that injunction that isn't integral. Practices that only focus in one area just don't cut it anymore. Hmm. And this isn't something I understand that you sort of made up. I mean, this whole integral life practice has a kind of lineage of its own. I remember reading uh, several years ago about maybe an early beta version of this integral transformative practice, which started with, as I understand it, George Leonard and Michael Murphy, two of the founders of Esalen. But it goes back even further than that to like Sri Aurobindo, who wrote a book on integral yoga. I wondered if you could say a little bit about the kind of lineage or the kind of history of this um, and how you see that as being part of what you're doing. Sure. Well, I trace the lineage, you know, all the way back. In some sense, I think a lot of the great path builders right from the beginning were were expressing an integral practice in their day. Certainly Patanjali's Yoga Sutras is an expression of an integral approach to practice. There are all the yogas, Raja Yoga, Pranayama, Hatha Yoga, Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga. It, it incorporates all these different dimensions of the being. So I think that the integral impulse has pervaded the Dharma stream forever. But the particular lineage that I'm teaching in, yeah, does go back to Sri Aurobindo. I would name Adi Da in that, too, because certainly the practice that he asked us to do was, in many respects, integral. It involved pretty much every moment of every day and certainly addressed these different dimensions. The, the first Western systematization was the integral transformative practice experiment that Michael Murphy and George Leonard generated in the early, mid-90s. I did join the community that was continuing to do that practice when I began to get involved with 
can. And so I, I kind of drank deep of that transmission line. And I, I like a lot of things about it. it. It is focused, I think, a little bit more on Michael Murphy is very interested in the development of supernormal abilities. And so his approach to integral transformative practice was influenced you know, by George Leonard's Aikido background, by their mutual background at Esalen. So their, their practices have a strong rooting in a community that practices together in a practice of affirmations and affirmations that have to do with athletic performance or developing supernormal capacities. There's less of an emphasis on sitting meditation. It has some unique richnesses, but it also has some fixed forms. There's a particular exercise series that you do if you're doing an ITP. When we got together with Ken and we began to formulate integral life practice, Ken, you know, being the great systematizer and, and pattern, his pattern recognition ability being what it is, he identified that the core principle here was cross-training. That is that when we're breaking up stucknesses in our mind and we're breaking up stucknesses in our spiritual life and we're breaking up stucknesses in our psychological patterns, that these liberate growth in a cross-training fashion, that there's integral cross-training. And there are anecdotal stories that Michael Murphy and Ken tell about a group of people taking up Vipassana practice and a subgroup taking up weightlifting at the same time. And there being a systematic evaluation process and some months into it, the folks who were doing the weightlifting seemed to be progressing much faster in their Vipassana practice than those who had not been. And the assertion is that even though weightlifting certainly has nothing to do with Vipassana, the strengthening and breaking up of fixations that was happening through taking up the weightlifting practice helped to advance their practice in Vipassana. And I, I think that that principle just intuitively bears out what I see in myself and in my students and in my whole life of, of practice. So noticing that, Ken decided, well, let's identify the categories that we want to cross-train between. So he identified four core modules. He called them modules, that is, areas within which you would practice, one of them being spiritual practices, by which he mainly meant meditation, mind practices, by which he mainly means acquiring more flexible and adequate structures through which you interpret your experience that is opening to a freer meaning making so reading reading books can be part of how you do that or having discussions or getting education but it, it really has to do with in a sense taking a bird's eye view and looking at your way of making meaning and structuring your mind and, and in a sense being a student of your own meaning making that's the mind module and then there's the shadow module what we call the shadow module in integral life practice which is really all about repression and the unconscious and bringing that forward and liberating ourselves from bondage to blindly enacting those patterns and the body module and that includes both gross body exercises and subtle body exercises and includes aerobics and strength training and neuromuscular conditioning and sports and pretty much the whole gamut. 
in my working with it, I, I prefer to use the word spheres. These are really just spheres of our lives. And I include two other modules, so to speak, or spheres, one of them being the intimate sphere of relationship and the other being our, our civic sphere of citizenship, where our responsibilities as a citizen of our community and our planet are embodied. Mm-hmm. So I think all of those are essential aspects of ourselves. And if we recognize that there are domains of practice, I think it wakes us up in an important way. So uh, you might say that there's an evolving project and that we're all involved in it, whether people call their work integral or not. I think a synthesis that is the product of several generations of sincere practitioners who are informed by the rational methods of science and logic and the kind of the whole Western tradition, devoting themselves to Buddhist and Hindu and Sufi and other paths in a serious way and conversing with one another and synthesizing the principles that emerge from their experience. I think that that project is something that is much bigger than those who are right now using the word integral. I think the word integral is is the right word, the best word, and I think the vocabulary that Ken has innovated and that I've tried to further in my work is pretty useful. But I see the project as being something that's pretty much inherent. There, there are many loci in which this conversation is moving forward, and I think we're all learning from each other. I think I've learned two words today, foci and loci. <laughs> foci, I've heard. Focus and locus, yeah. Okay, nice. Perfect. <laughs> Maybe to wrap the conversation up about practice, and this is sort of maybe narrowing the conversation a bit since we were just talking about this really broad thing of integral life practice. In one of our conversations before we did this interview, we were talking about the phases of practice because this is something, you know, at the most naive or most idealistic when we first start something new, even if we know this hasn't been true in other things we've done, we tend to have like a kind of intuitive linear view, like somehow this thing is just going to be a linear progression. When we start practicing, we start meditating, we start working out. It's just going to keep getting better and better and better. Uh, One of my friends called this the Buzz Lightyear model to infinity (laughs) and beyond. (laughs) I wondered, you know, because you have a real uh, nuanced view of the phases of practice, you talked about different types of phases. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Mm. Yeah. One way of talking about phasing is it's just acknowledging the fact that we all have good and bad days. We have good and bad weeks, months, even years. And that sometimes we're practicing kind of hanging on by our fingernails. And sometimes it seems as though we are, well, in fact, we are having profound awakenings that are transforming our whole way of being. And we're feeling whole new domains of freedom and joy and clarity. And the consistency of recognizing that there just are inherent phases that are good and bad and that we have to respect that a consistency of participating in our practice intention even when it's hardest in fact that persisting when it's hardest is one of the most high leverage things we can do that the consistency that teaching our body teaching our our unconscious and resistive subpersonalities that this is a a non-negotiable commitment that we've signed up for, that this is critical. So working in a way that is respecting that those phases are inevitable and not 
thinking something is going wrong, but, but staying consistent with it. That's certainly a key principle. Now, there are also phases in a different sense that when we first discover the Dharma and we discover practice and we begin to practice, we progress pretty quickly. There are a lot of basic fruits that we get pretty early on. That honeymoon phase is a really wonderful phase, but at a certain point, we get to a place where we've gained all the ground we're going to kind of get in that easy beginner's luck phase of things, and we reach a phase in which we have to practice at a kind of plateau. And it requires different kinds of muscles, and a lot of people lose track and begin to become pretty inconsistent in their practice. And so it's very important to just account for the fact that this is inevitable. And then after some time on the path, if you've managed to get back on the wagon, if you've fallen off or if you've been able to stay consistent, there are these phases in which you go through deep times of profound clarity and serenity and stillness and freedom and joy. And then maybe some phases in which you might go through something like a dark night of the soul, in which you have no confirmation in the way you feel at all. And recognizing that these can be mapped out. We have a section of the book, Integral Life Practice, where I, I kind of identified a whole series of phases of the, the honeymoon, of practicing at the plateau, falling from grace, of the fruits of practice, of the dark night of the soul, of, of commitment, and of a point where you begin to realize, I, I think in that section of the book, I use the metaphor, you know, that one of the great things about air travel is that you realize in a very visceral way that the sun is always shining. And that recognition, when it becomes embodied, that even though I feel like shit today, that which lights my heart and inspires me and is so self-validating and clarifying, you know, is, is somehow true even now. And knowing that in a way that isn't just an abstract idea, but a kind of certainty in the being, you know, that gets established with the consistency of practice over time so that there is a kind of stability that gets established such that you're living in relation to what you know to be true even when you can't feel it. And recognizing that all of that then establishes a ground. And then there's something else that's going on. And that is the happy accident of awakening, of radical freedom, which appears both in a way that comes and goes. That is, there are these times of awakening that do end, states that come and go, as Ken Wilber would say. And there are also awakenings that come and stay, a certain clarity. You know, having seen the truth, you can never go back to become confused about it ever again in the same fashion. That becomes cumulative, such that a certain kind of freedom, a certain kind of joy, a certain kind of humor may never leave. I always found it very interesting how the Eastern traditions didn't tend to discriminate between two kinds of fruits of practice. One of the fruits of practice is that you kind of get in good shape. If you're meditating regularly, if you've brought a certain kind of sila to your life, a certain kind of harmony and, and clarity, 
and you've been consistent in your practice for a period of time, you're in good shape. And if there are a series of really big challenges and your life is difficult, you get sick, this and that, you're not able to practice as consistently, you'll be in bad shape. Now, I was always respectful. I was, it's always better to be in good shape. But I was always interested in fruits of practice that would persist even if you were in bad shape. I wanted there to be something lasting, permanent, that couldn't go away. And the recognition that the whole path is about what Ken would call state stages rather than what he would call structure stages and that there's something inherent about the transformations on the spiritual path that are, even when they are lasting, they are about the present condition of consciousness and of the body-mind. And therefore, they are surprisingly subject to the current conditions of life. And I think that coming to some of the integral clarities about the difference between state and structure stage growth in consciousness and honoring both and being able to be a consistent practitioner who's honoring both kinds of phases, these, these are all been really important, liberating insights for me. I think the great traditions are wonderful, but we're, we're in a time now where some of the insights we can get by turning and looking at their structure from a third-person perspective and critiquing them, and then coming back in and climbing into the practice from a first-person perspective that's lit in a new way by what we've learned from that more objectified critique is absolutely necessary. And with that, I think Dharma actually is evolving right now in ways that make a substantive difference. That's, that's why I, I'm excited by what I think we're contributing through this integral conversation. I think it is taking us to some genuinely new places, some incremental, important transformations in the evolution of Dharma. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.